0: you. For listening with us, and we hope that this proves to be beneficial to you in the days to come. Writing is an art that not many master. Some like flowery language, and they can fill pages with prose without really saying anything. And they're showing they have a rather unique vocabulary, and they want you to know it. Then there are others, true masters of the craft, that state their case in a paragraph. You understand it, get hold of what is being said, and you move along with a greater understanding of what needs to be known. Trained journalists are skilled in such a way. The best can say so much in so few words that it amazes the mind. These are the masters. They communicate ideas, history, concepts, and such that you and I can understand. They're not writing to impress their contemporaries, they're addressing you and me. And they're trying to tell us what we need to know without getting verbose and carried away with flowery language. Paul the Apostle is one of the best. Granted, he did have the inspiration of the Spirit of God guiding him. The book of Philippians contains six chapters which were added in the year 1560 in the Geneva Bible. There are 2,244 words in this letter, and it should take really about 20 minutes to read through the letter, and yet it contains volumes of information that has had men studying for centuries. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. A common introduction. He identifies himself, starting with his name, and the name of his partner, Silas, who is with him. This was a typical introduction that many writers used in his day. Paul, however, was not just one among many. He was also a Christian and a theologian and a man called by God to a particular task. This is not just a nice proper letter. He's writing this letter to communicate the truth of God and to teach the deepest and most important crucial aspects of a Christian's relationship. Paul identifies himself as a slave. The word servant in the Greek is the word doulos, which means slave. Now, personally, I do not easily identify with the idea of slavery. I've read about it and have always seen it in a bad light. A slave is someone who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master. He's considered chattel property, someone who is owned by another. The United States went to war to end slavery. Wilberforce fought for decades to end slavery in England. It is truly a despicable institution that demeans humanity. In the minds of millions, this was a wicked institution that broke the man, the body, and the mind, and brought an individual into an indentured servitude against his will and crushed him with a whip. So when I read about slavery, I have to step back and consider what the apostle is saying. We have to think this through. Am I a slave? Now, slavery, we need to understand, it is a global practice that still is in uh, being exercised in several nations around the world. And it's been around for millennia. It's not simply an American phenomenon that we seldom show any concern of the slavery that has been and is being practiced in our day. The Maduro Foundation's Walk Free Initiative has provided a global index that studies modern slavery. It's estimated that over 43 million people are held in slavery throughout the world. This is an umbrella term that covers various forms of coercion prohibited in international instruments of human rights and labor standards, meaning slavery, institutions and practices similar to slavery, forced slavery, like we find in China, trafficking in persons, and forced marriage, which we find in the cartels in Mexico as they are bringing people into the United States. Slavery seldom refers to a willingness of the individual, but to the force of submission. A clear example of forced labor is found among the Uyghur people, as we mentioned, in China. This is a notorious slave trade practice using children, and it's noted that children make up 25% of modern slavery in our day. Antiquity reveals that slavery was applied by conquest. An enemy nation conquers and the victor takes the citizens as a captive and forces them into servitude. With parents as slaves, a child is born into slavery, and he knows nothing of freedom. Others were forced into slavery due to debts that they had incurred, and poor people would sell their children into slavery in order to pay a debt. This was surprisingly common, so much so that the Jew had a law that was established that would lessen the power of this particular custom. It was called the Year of Jubilee. Every 50 years in the Year of Jubilee, those who had become slaves were automatically set free. This was established in the Levitical laws found in Leviticus 25. I cannot picture any slavery that would be pleasant, but I do understand vaguely something of the institution. I discovered that I had been caught in slavery many years ago. Many don't realize that this is a fixed principle. You are unwittingly a slave to a variety of things. And therein lies the tragedy. We learn to adjust and acclimate, and we become comfortable in the slavery that we're bound to. The Jews boasted to Jesus saying, we're slaves to no man. And this was absolute nonsense. And a complete denial of historical fact, their illustrious history and their copiously recorded history points clearly to their being enslaved to men and freed only by the glorious intervention and the power of God. What was the exodus from Egypt all about? Were these men, these learned Pharisees, that blind and ignorant to the truth? They chose to select various times and particular periods to display their willful ignorance. They ignored the obvious and they were undeterred by the facts. Does that remind you of anything or of anybody? The Jews cited Abraham, but they overlooked Jacob's venture in Egypt and the Jewish sojourn in Goshen, or the slavery of 400 years in Egypt, a glaring omission on their part that appealed to both their emotions and their egos. Also, they made the statement, being slaves to no men, while they were under bondage to Rome. On every corner stood a Roman soldier, living in servitude had become a way of life, So much so that they had learned how to adjust their lives as they accepted their slavery. We do this as well. I was a slave to tobacco for years. It had me bound both physically and mentally. I learned how to adjust and came to enjoy my bondage. I made accommodations, proper accommodations. To me, it was not really a problem, just like to the Pharisees. The Roman soldiers had become acceptable and normal fixtures in their mind. Rather than slavery, perhaps they looked at them as being their protectors. Paul explains slavery in this way. Don't you know that if you offer yourself to be someone's slave, you must obey that master. Either your master is sin or your master is obedience. You can look that up in Romans chapter 6. Paul speaks of offering yourselves to be a slave. Now, who in their right mind would freely offer themselves to be a slave? Slavery, as I understood it, is forced obedience. And in the American mind, this is seen as whips flying through the air and the sting on the backs of men. Harsh reality says there are two choices a man can make at that point. He can refuse to submit, he can resist and face torture and death, or he can willingly submit and face the consequences. One, you choose life. The other, you choose death. The third choice, you can choose to be enslaved. Really? These are the choices that we have? Yes, in the final analysis, these are the choices that we have. And these are the choices that we make. And Paul is telling us the same thing. You experience slavery through force, deceit, or willingly. Now, the Jews declared, well, well, we, we hear what you're saying, but we're slaves to no man. And again, that was an absurd claim. So absurd as the Jewish soldiers heard this and they might have laughed. They're slaves to no man? Really? Okay. What about tobacco? God created tobacco. It was perverted by men and sold by groups of men who have organized themselves in order to sell a highly addictive product to men and women throughout the world. These companies offer a product that leads to severe addiction, which some say is more addictive than cocaine. These are not mere claims and accusations. These are proven facts which are well documented and supported by the medical community. With all the supporting evidence These enterprises have the full support of the governments throughout the world. Why? It's money. Addicts willingly give their money and their time to these men in order to purchase the product that they provide. While we're aware of the addictive nature of tobacco, young people don't fully understand. And for them, it's deemed to be indicative of virility and maturity. Oh, to stand the smoking area at the high school and suck on dead leaves that have been soaked in chemicals and then wrapped in paper and set on fire the American dream. It's obvious that they're being exploited and deceived by R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris International, China National Tobacco, and British American Tobacco. They all realize this. They hire powerful advertising firms to voice their products on the public. Come to where the flavor is, they say. The young folks respond. They come. But they do not realize that they're financing their own servitude. Not yet. 20 years later, while they're hacking their way down the highway with spots on their lungs, gray skin, yellow teeth, and a smell that will not wash out of their cars, they're addicted, though they may deny it. I've mentioned this to people that I've spoken to over the years, and their response has been, well, I'm going to die from something. That is to say, look, I like my bondage. I don't mind my slavery. Why don't you do you and leave me alone? Now, these guys are bound by no man, and they'll tell you that. But let them run out of cigarettes and see what happens. Oh, yes. Yes. They're slaves to a small stick of tobacco and a group of well-dressed executives who drive fine cars in Virginia. Well, what about alcohol? You knew that was coming. Adolphus Bush and Everhard Einhauser were two men who together built an American icon known as Ein- Einhauser Bush. They introduced Americans to Budweiser Beer. Have you ever met a man addicted to alcohol? Have you ever tried to help an alcoholic in recovery? Do you know what delirium tremors are? Have you met the family of an alcoholic? Ah, uh, they don't advertise these things on TV, do they? Thousands die each year due to drunken drivers on roadways. The chance of divorce is three times more likely when alcohol is present in the household. And no, the marketing moguls will not tell you these facts. It reminds me of what a lady was told a few years back. Well, they asked, they were asked, has God really said? Men and women alike will tell you they're not addicted. They just enjoy the taste and the buzz and the good times. Yeah. Yeah. A struggling family, though, suffers because the head of the family, the daddy, he likes the taste of his liquor so much, he spends the grocery money and the rent money while sitting at a tiny table in a ritzy restaurant sipping on a cold beer, while his wife is fighting off the landlord and having to wrestle with the debt collectors and trying to find a way to feed three kids on virtually no money. Okay, but this guy is bound by no man. He'll tell you that. He just puts a bottle to his head and he pulls the trigger as he tries to drink away the memories. No, he is bound by no man. Just a bottle, bad memories, and a different group of well-dressed executives sitting in St. Louis, Missouri, who all drive nice cars. The list is endless. Drugs, business, money, television, music, women, adventures, cars, comfort, trucks. As humans, we are prone to addiction. And we in our ignorance willingly surrender ourselves to a host of masters only to recognize our bondage when it's too late. The family is destroyed. The kids are grown and gone. The marriage is wrecked. And I've seen grown men weep when they finally realize what they've willingly done. Then they cry for freedom and they long for restoration. It can come. And the Lord is willing. But so much damage has already been done. Paul, however, is not pointing to the physical addiction, but to a mental and emotional bondage the bondage of the will. There is a slavery that man has been born into. We are the children of slaves, as were our parents. We're slaves to sin, just like our fathers were, and just like our grandfathers were before him. Wise men who have experienced life openly admit to this. David, the greatest king to occupy the throne of Israel, said, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Sin ruled over him, though he sat on the throne of Israel. It made him do things he did not want to do. And he prayed for deliverance from his bondage. He said, O Lord, don't let presumptuous sins have dominion over me. And then Solomon speaks of the sinner being bound by the cords of his sin. And when Paul introduced himself to the Philippians, he let them know that he too was a slave. And he had a full recognition and understanding of all that this implied. He was speaking as a bond servant who was bound by choice. But To what? Or to whom was he bound? Cigarettes? No. Alcohol? No. Power and influence? Position? No. He was bound to a master named Jesus Christ, the same Jesus he had spoken of to the Philippians. He was bound by choice, by calling, and by right of purchase. But most importantly, he was bound by the love of God to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let your preconceived notions of slavery dictate how you understand this, as I did for years there is a blessed slavery. And no, not all slaves were subjected to abuse and suffering, as many would have us think. The Roman centurion sent to ask Jesus to heal his servant, his slave, who was like one of the family, Onesimus, a dear friend and helpful runaway slave that was deeply loved as a father would love his child by Paul. Paul pled on his behalf that Philemon, his owner, would be kind to the returning slave and treat him as a returning brother, one who had come to Christ. When Christ comes into the life of an individual, the individual changes the way he thinks. Bondage to Christ is like nothing man has ever known. If this is a slavery, then please make my family and friends slaves as well. This is what Paul is wanting to communicate to the Philippians in his introduction. Everything Paul has to say here directs the reader to a personal relationship with Christ. He's saying, look, I am Paul and I am bound to Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Christ, not to Rome, not to Caesar, though he was in prison, and he was not even bound to the Jews. I am a slave to one master, to Jesus Christ. And this is all that matters. Throughout the letter to the Philippians, this is what he is showing. The gospel changes the way we view things, and not many have truly come to understand this. There were within the body of believers at Philippi, both bondmen and free. The idea of slavery was well understood back then. Paul was... Elevating the understanding of both, bringing them to realize that Christ is supreme and we, as believers and as bondmen or freemen, we are subordinate to him by calling and by choice. Paul did not have the Civil War as a backdrop to consider. We do. Our concept of slavery is twisted when considering slavery. I cannot ever think of slavery as a good thing. But the institution of slavery in Philippi is far removed from the notion of slavery in the southern United States in 1865. This does not say that slavery is a good or favorable institution by any means. But the way we understand it is somewhat skewed. Draw back in your studies of scripture and consider Joseph's time in Egypt. He was a slave as he worked for his master Potiphar. There was nothing that would resemble our preconceived thoughts towards slavery that was practiced under Potiphar's rule. true. Joseph was sold into slavery against his will. He was not forced to live, though, in subhuman conditions. He did not have a deeply scarred back, nor was he fed gruel as he picked the finest cotton in the world. No, he was given complete rule over all Potiphar had. He had the keys to the house and rule over all the other slaves. Slaves had a great deal of autonomy in the Roman Empire. A slave could have been set free and then elect to remain within the service of the master. It would become an employer-employee relationship. But why would he do that? He would do it due to the kindness and the relationship established over the years. It had become a loving relationship, much like a son to a father or a daughter to a mother. Paul was bound to Christ. He had come to know Christ on the road to Damascus. And he took a three-year block of, of time, which I believe were spent in getting to know Christ. In the growth of his knowledge, his relationship was deepened. He came to a profound understanding of the amazing love of God and the unsearchable riches of his grace. There's a song that was written by George Matheson that says, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. He understood the love of Christ. There was something akin to that song in the heart of Paul. He saw himself belonging to Christ by right of purchase, by right of redemption. He is not suggesting in any way that now that we're Christian, we're no longer bound to our masters, nor is he saying masters are no longer uh, able to claim slaves. No, he is saying that we who follow Christ are bond servants to Christ. A great deal of Paul's statement was based on the depth of his understanding of forgiveness, mercy, and the greatness of God. He knew and he longed to know even more the love of God that was seen in Christ Jesus. He clearly states that it was the love of God that constrained him as he was explaining things to the Corinthians. This is what Paul desires for us to know as well. He says to you and to me, I too have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. For this reason, I never stop thanking God for you. I always remember you in my prayers and I pray that the glorious Father, the God of our Lord Jesus, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know Christ better. You will know the confidence that he calls you to have in the glorious wealth that God's people will inherit. And you'll also know the unlimited greatness of his power as it works with might and strength for us, the believers. He worked with that same power in Christ when he brought him back to life and gave him the honored position, the one next to God, the father on the heavenly throne. Paul goes on to say later in the same letter that you would have power to grasp how wide and how long and how deep and how high is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge. You know. If you know these things, and this is what's intimated to the Philippians here, if you know these things, which are not subject to some special hidden knowledge, but these things are freely given to you who believe in Christ, then you'll be able to say too, with sincerity and full confidence, that you too are a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So Paul says so much to us in so few words. Let's continue on to the next study. We thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.